So every week, one of our values here, we want to publicly read scripture. So please remain standing for the reading of God's word. This is from Jeremiah chapter 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The children are dismissed from children's church. That is loud. That's really loud. When I start screaming and hollering here a little bit, you guys are going to, no, joking. But that is pretty loud. So the kids, there they go. They're off on their way to the children's church for this morning. Well, good morning. How is everyone doing? You good? All right. We're good. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. As we look to begin a new series. It's always interesting when things don't go the way we planned. Today was supposed to be a covenant service for us. And we were hoping that we would have the uh, opportunity to come together as a church. And we were trying to hit this really, really narrow window between the Bowman baby and our baby. That window has now been missed. Um, So we're going to push back that covenant service to October 3rd, um, just so that we want everybody who's kind of been a part of this uh, church plant to be there and be a part of that. As we do that, what's really I think good is, one, the opportunity for more people to come alongside and join us. And so if you uh, are, are interested in that or want to learn more about what church membership looks like or what we even mean by covenant service, let me know and we can talk about that. We have some other folks who are interested in doing that and maybe we can find a time that we can all get together, do a membership class uh, with one another, and we can have even a bigger covenant service, which would be a great and wonderful thing. And the other thing I think that's always helpful when our plans don't go the way that we want them to do is it's a great time to remember that God's plans are never thwarted. It's a great time to remember that when my plan doesn't go the way that I want it to go, it's because God's plan is in spite of me, not because of me. And so I pray as you walk in this morning and as you walk into any Sunday morning here at Redemption Hill Church, that you would know that God has something for you today. See, the reason why one of the things we're committed to is live preaching and why we do that, why we even plant autonomous churches to begin with, and we don't just make a giant uh, bunch of campuses, is because we believe sermons in particular are meant for a specific group of people. I believe this sermon is not meant for all the people who listen on the internet, but this sermon is meant for you today, that God and his sovereign plan has brought each person here today. And even though Josh's plans went awry, God's did not. 
And I want you to, to know that. And yeah, that's true every Sunday morning. But I say take advantage of the reality of knowing that the plan didn't go the way we planned. And it's just kind of a, a, a good marker to remember, ah, but God's plan is still taking place. So be ready as we open up the word of God. And so for that, and because of um, plans maybe not going our way, I just want to take a moment and I want to pray with you before we jump into God's word. Father, we come to you and we just want to acknowledge that you are the one who's in control. The Proverbs tells us that a man will plan his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Father, that plans are good and they're helpful. They help us get things accomplished. We want to be like you who is a planning God. We want to be good planners and organizers, but we also want to recognize in those plans that while we can be like you in the laying of plans, we cannot be like you in ensuring that they always come together. God, there are just ways that I am not like you, and no human being is like you. There is no God like our God. And one of those things, God, is that your plans, your promises always come to pass. And that's something that we'll talk about today in this passage, God. That you, the God who never lies, promised to bring about this work of salvation through Jesus before the ages began. And there was nothing that was going to keep that promise from happening. And that's an awesome and good thing. And so, Lord, help us recognize that you are the one in control. We are not. And help us know that that is a really good thing Because not only are you a powerful God, a sovereign God who's in control, you are a good and kind, compassionate Father who exercises that control in such a way that it's for the good of his people. And so, Lord, help us see that and recognize that as we dive into this text this morning. I say this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the book of Titus, I'm excited. I love preaching in this way in in that we start at verse 1 and we will finish at the end of the book in a few weeks here. So week by week, we're going to take kind of chunks at a time. And so today we're looking at Titus 1, 1 through 4. And what's awesome about things like this is we get to talk about the book in general. And and the book of Titus is really meant to teach us uh, one kind of big theme, just like any kind of book that you might read or what it might be. And that big theme of the book of Titus is that the things that we believe are going to have a direct impact on how we behave and act in the world. Our beliefs have a direct impact on our behavior. We'll we'll get to that later on in this chapter. He pretty explicitly says that as he contrasts what the Christian is to be like and then what these people who are not Christians in Crete, which is the the place that he is, is writing to is a church in Crete. And as he does that, we see that that's kind of this big theme, this overarching theme of Titus, and that we have titled this series, Becoming a Faith Family, because we believe that when that happens, when we come together and we believe the things that God has told us and he's instructed us, it's going to impact the way we live. And one of the ways it impacts the way that we live is we commit to one another as Christians. And we commit to each other and we walk arms together and we walk together and we become a family, even though we're from diverse backgrounds and worlds, we become tied together in Jesus. And we're even going to see family kind of language even in this opening that he sees that we have today. And so that's what we look at is that when we believe rightly about God, it then allows us to believe rightly about this world and about the people in this world. And so that's what you see all throughout the book of Titus. And as that's happening, one commentator even called this book an apostolic manual for church planting. 
He says, here is a blueprint for planting and building churches that will survive and thrive for the glory of God. And so why walk through the book of Titus in the early days of Redemption Hill Church? Because if there is a blueprint and a manual for church planting in the Bible, we want to use it. That's what we want to do. And so that's what I want you to look through as, as people who are becoming members of this church and a part of this body. We're going to take the next couple months walking through a couple verses at a time, the book of Titus, and we want to do that in such a way that we see the manual for church planting for churches that do just that. That's what I want Redemption Hill to be. I want it to be a church that, that not just survives, but that thrives for the glory of God. And that's what we want to be, and we want to take God's word in that. And so we'll let that, let's go ahead and read Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and in Christ Jesus, our Savior. What we want to look at this morning is that it was we look at this letter that is about godliness, believing the right thing and then behaving the right way. That's what we would call godliness. That this letter is written to a godly man who is hoping in a godly hope, and it's written to a godly recipient. And so we're going to look at those people. First is the godly man the Apostle Paul, to be very specific in verses 1 and 2 as we look there. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. You see, Paul is an apostle, and he's calling that out right in the first sentence of, of this letter. He's saying kind of, you know, hey, listen up, I'm writing with some authority. And we kind of talked about this uh, even in the last couple weeks. We've talked about Paul's journey to faith, that Paul was a persecutor of the church. His name was Saul of Tarsus, and on his way to Damascus, getting ready to persecute more Christians, the Lord Jesus himself appears to Paul and knocks him to the ground. And Paul is blinded for three days, and Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus identifies so much with the body of Christ that when Paul is persecuting Christians, Jesus says, it's like you're persecuting me, myself. He says, why are you doing this? And he tells him, you are zealous for the wrong kind of thing, and he shows him the kind of suffering that Paul's going to do so that Paul might be an apostle but very specifically, an apostle to the Gentiles. And he tells him, you will suffer for the behalf of, of the Gentiles, which is crazy because Paul is a Jew and he's so Jewish, he's persecuting these Jewish Christians because they're telling Gentiles about God. And Jesus is saying, not anymore. You're now gonna come and you're gonna work for me and I'm gonna redeem you so much that the people you once persecuted, you're not gonna become just like them and you're gonna go and share the gospel with Gentiles. And that is what, is, that is what Paul is saying is he is, I am an apostle. And what's he an apostle for in Titus 1? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. When he talks about God's elect writing to these people in Crete, these are Gentiles. They're predominantly not Jewish people. And he calls them God's elect because he's calling them God's chosen. 
what Israel always knew that they were, what Jewish people always knew they were, they knew that they were God's chosen people. And Paul is using this language and he's saying, listen, these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus, they are God's chosen people. They are just as much God's people as you Jews are. So here I am, I am an apostle, an apostle to Jesus for the sake of God's elect, just like God planned to save Israel and shows that plan all throughout the Old Testament. He is saying, God is planning before the ages began to save these Gentiles through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is saying this really hard truth for us that both is God's election, God's choice to save these people, but then a little bit later, it's also these people's response. It's a really confusing thing, something that we don't like. We like to kind of fit in one camp or the other of these kind of things. What happens here? And I would say, I don't understand how it works, but it's both. God is choosing, God is doing it, And human beings are expected to also make the choice to follow Jesus. And it's both that's happening in this. And so he's saying, listen, God's elect, who I planned before the the world began in this passage, but it's also that their knowledge needs to accord with godliness. I expect these people that I have saved to start acting a specific way to start doing things and actually making real-life choices and real-life decisions. He's bringing this tension together. And that this was always the plan of God. This isn't something God was like, oh no, they messed it up. They sinned in the garden. What do we do now? Uh, I'll figure that. God has always planned to do this. In Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 8 and 11, I'm just going to kind of cut out the middle there. It says, Paul is talking here. He says, to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, the grace that is his apostleship, to be someone who went and proclaimed the message of the gospel to Gentiles. He says this, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then in verse 11, he says this, this was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, what we see here is that God has this plan that he is working in these people He's working in you, in us, that we are supposed to be here today. God's plans are never thwarted and they're never kept away, but yet we are elected and chosen by God, a part of his people, and yet we are expected to make some choices ourselves. We're expected to live in accordance with that truth, in accordance of the knowledge of the truth, that when we believe rightly, that we will also live rightly. See, our sin, our difficulty in life is often a problem of our belief. What we believe about God, at least functionally, doesn't line up with what we know the scripture teaches about God. And so we start to live all out of whack. We don't see people in our relationships the way we're supposed to see them because our relationship with God and who we believe him to be has become disjointed. And that's the starting point for all of it. And when the starting point is messed up, you can't expect that the rest is going to pan out well either. And we start to see that as well because Paul, later on in in this letter, what he's doing is he's going to talk about who Christians are here. He's going to then talk about who Christian leaders are. And then at the end of chapter one, he's going to talk about Cretans, these people from Crete and who they are. And in verse nine, he says about them, you can just look at their Bible, 
that Christians are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He's, he's quoting one of their prophets, and he's talking about this place. You see, this place of Crete, it's a rough place. It'd be like a rough neighborhood here in Columbus. This isn't, this isn't a, for the faint of heart. Titus is, is, the, is getting sent in to deal with some people who have gotten really out of whack, and they're all over the place. And actually, it was said that, that in Crete, their morality was such that it was a normal thing to lie. That lying had almost been lost as something as being immoral. That lying was acceptable. And what's really interesting about that, their lying actually went so far that they had lied to the world and they claimed that they were the resting place that that they had in their city, the tomb of Zeus. Well, we know that's a lie because there is no Zeus. And so the tomb was empty. But even at that time, other Greeks said, Christians are liars. We all know that the tomb is empty. Zeus isn't actually there. But that's what they told everyone. That, and they held this place that this is, Zeus is our God and we, we got him and he's kind of the, the big time God in Greek mythology. And what's actually really even interesting about Zeus is in Greek mythology, Zeus is a liar. See, Zeus comes to earth and he takes on not just the likeness of a man, but a very specific man, a married man. And he looks like this married man so that he might have sexual relations with that guy's wife. That's the God they serve. The God they serve is a liar. He takes on someone else's identity so that he can do something horrific and commit adultery with this woman. That's their God. And then you have this society that's known for lying. You have this society that's getting called out where where everyone, even the Greeks, recognize that they're liars. And I think what's really interesting about that is it's this push of the letter is the God that you serve is the God that you're going to act like. And he's looking at these Christians and he's saying, listen, they serve a lying God. No wonder that they're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. The God that they serve is the God that they look like. They look like Zeus. And so in our passage, we have Paul calling out that our God never lies. That our God always keeps his promises. And he's contrasting him with Zeus, this other God that's happening around this island, this place in Crete, that we have to see that this is what's happening. And so what we want to take from the letter as we look at Paul, a godly man, who, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ, but also sees himself as a servant of God, someone who serves the Lord with all that he is and upholds a really high standard of morality. Why? Because he believes in a God who never lies. The God he serves does not sin, came and lived a perfect life without sin. And so Paul's God looks really different, which means Paul's behavior looks a lot different. And Paul is calling these Christians and saying, you need to look like the God that you serve. So he says, I am an apostle for the sake of the knowledge of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. He wants us to know what is true because when we know what is true, we will live what is true. And what we have to see as a young church, it's really important that we have a good understanding of who God is. Because who we functionally believe God to be in our church is how our church will manifest itself to this community. If we believe in the loving God of the Bible, 
we will behave like the loving God of the Bible. But if we let something else sneak in and become an idol, even if it's unrecognized and unknown, that will manifest its way out into the way that our church interacts with each other and with our community. And so what we want to see is that we serve the God who never lies, which then also helps us see that because we serve the God who does not lie, we can have an eternal hope. We can have a godly hope. Looking at our second point here, going back to verse two, I kind of had to pull into those verses a little bit to flesh out what was happening there. And Paul is an apostle, so it's kind of taking that off, uh, or taking that into account again for the sake of, of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And he's also an apostle in hope, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. See, as Paul is an apostle to these really hard places like Crete, he's an apostle who has hope. He is optimistic about his apostleship. He's optimistic about his ministry. He has hope, but not in himself. Look what he has hope in. He has hope in eternal life, an eternal life that comes through what? That comes through God, the God who never lies and who has promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. So he is saying that his hope is not in himself and his own ability. It's not in our plans to have a covenant service when we want to have it. Our hope has to be in God, in the eternal life that he promises and that he brings. And we have hope in God. Why? Because our God is the God who keeps his promises. Our God is the God who promises. Our God is the God who plans. Our God is the God who reveals. And our God is the God who commands. All right, now that's on the slide there behind you, and I'm going to point that out in the passage now. So God is those things. That's why we can have hope. He's the God who plans. He's the God who reveals. He's the God who, uh, excuse me, he's the God who promises, plans, reveals, and commands. So where's his promises? Well, his promises are right there, that he promised before the world began, and he never lies. God is the God who will keep all of his promises. He's also the God who plans. See, if he's the God who promised it before the ages began, and then the God who manifested it in Jesus, who made those plans come about, that promise, that is a plan. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says this. Jesus, he's quoting Peter, I'm quoting Peter here, says, Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, that's how we have eternal life. See, this plan that Jesus would die for sin was since before the ages began. It's always been a a part of God's plan, and he has seen it through every step of the way. So why can I have hope when the world is chaotic and going crazy? Because I serve the God who's got a plan. And even when things seem as most chaotic and hopeless as possible, like when the Son of God is hanging on a cross. I don't know that anything can look more hopeless than that. God is saying there is hope. This is the plan. The plan is for Jesus to die for sin because he's going to raise again. You don't see it. You don't get it. I know what's coming next. I'm the God who keeps his promises, and I'm the God who has a plan. Because what we also know is that he's the God who reveals. So he manifested that then in Christ and in his word, which is what our passage says today, through the preaching, 
which Paul had been entrusted with. So what Paul is saying is, not only does God have these plans, but he's making these plans known. And that's what he's doing through Paul's ministry, through his preaching, the word, which is the gospel, that Jesus came, he lived a life we could not live, he died the death that we deserved, and then he rose again, according to the scriptures, from the dead on the third day. That that was going to happen, and that is the word that Paul is talking about, the gospel that he is now preaching. But he can also say, and listen, this gospel is going to take hold. This gospel is going to take root. This gospel is going to change people's lives. Why? Because I was entrusted by the command of God. And what kind of God? By God's command, God our Savior. Right there in the passage, God can save. Paul's optimistic about his ministry. He believes God is going to do things in his ministry, not because of his ability, not because he knows how to just really figure out a culture or because he's just got a really great church planting strategy or because he knows how to market really, really well or they have a really good website. Paul is confident that God is going to change lives because God is the Savior. He has commanded him to go. He has revealed this wonderful plan. He's got a plan and he always keeps his promises. We can have confidence that God is going to have his way. I am a huge fan of superhero movies. I'm a total nerd. I really like them. I like superhero movies. I like the action. I like the humor. I like all the fun stuff around it. But if I'm honest, you know what? I really like superhero movies. I really like that the good guys always win right? I really like the feeling in an action movie, a superhero movie, a sci-fi movie, whatever it is, right? They always got a kind of like a good one that has the moment where all hope seems lost. And and you're kind of like, oh no, what's going to happen? Like you can think of any superhero action movie that you've ever seen. They all have one moment. They're the same plot line recycled. I know it's not very deep, but I like it. I like that it's a plot line and I like that I kind of know what's going to happen next. I like that feeling of completion. I like that that's going to happen. And all hope seems lost, and then out of nowhere comes sweeping in the superhero, however it is, and he saves the day. But here's the reality that you need to know when you're watching a superhero movie. There's a screenwriter, and there's a director. And these people who exist outside of the fantasy that you've allowed yourself to get caught up into to enjoy the movie are going to ensure that the good guys win. There is somebody who exists outside who is the author of this storyline. And he's ensuring that the story, in the story, that hope will win. And that's why when you watch the superhero movie, you can be so confident that the good guy is going to sweep in and save the day. Because you've seen a lot of Hollywood movies. You know they're really, really predictable. And what I want to encourage you is this, is in your life, We need to start looking at life the same way. We need to know that somebody exists outside of our life who is writing the story. He's writing the script and he's gonna make sure that the good guys win. He's gonna make sure that you can have hope and your hope isn't some frivolous thing where you're just like hoping it turns out okay, but you have hope in eternal life and that is sealed and guaranteed and nothing is gonna keep that from coming. Nothing's gonna keep that from happening. God is going to have his way. You're protected and you're in him even when everything goes wrong. We can know in that hopeless moment that there is hope because there's an author and perfecter of our faith. That he is writing the story and he has promised you before the ages began, I'm going to have my way. 
In my way is good. And in my way, Jesus, the ultimate hero, is going to be exalted. Every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of your sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to future glory of eternal life that he has coming for you. So you don't hope in just kind of this like wishful thinking kind of way. That's not Christian hope. You hope in a God who never lies. You hope in the God who always keeps his promises. And so we can have hope in everything. And I think what an important thing for Titus to hear and have exemplified by his mentor. Titus, I'm an apostle. And and man, I got hope. And I have hope in eternal life. And I hope hope in God. Because Titus, where I've sent you, it's going to be really hard. This place called Crete, They're messed up, man. They're going to come after you. This is going to be a really, really hard place to be a pastor. But you need to have hope. You need to be optimistic, Titus. And Paul is doing that, and he gets to address him. Because, listen, Titus' job, throughout this letter, he's going to have to appoint pastors and elders. He's going to have to address and call out false teachers. He's going to have to instruct families and how they are to live with one another. And he's have to show them and teach that in this church that what they believe is always, always going to impact and manifest in how they live. That's what happens in the rest of the letter. This is a tall order and a tough job for this guy to hear. But he's hearing it knowing, listen, Titus, my apostleship, my ministry, I am hopeful. I am hopeful even though I've been beaten, persecuted, stoned, sleepless nights, I am hopeful, but I'm not hopeful in me. I'm hopeful in the God who never lies. The God who's ever and always going to have his way. So finally, I want us to look and learn just a little bit about Titus, the godly recipient. Verse 4, it says, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, faith, grace and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Titus was a Greek man who had come to faith in Jesus. In the book of Galatians, we learn that Titus was not convinced to be circumcised, even though he had a ton of pressure to become circumcised, which is a a Jewish ritual kind of rite. And so they were thinking, well, now that you're following the one true God, you need to be circumcised. And he was like, nope, I don't have to do that. Um, And so Titus did not become circumcised. And so he's the kind of guy who stands his ground, even when everybody's pressuring him. He's also the kind of guy who gets sent to places like Crete and Corinth because the other place that he gets talked about is in Corinth. Well, the Corinthian church is no less crazy than, than this Cretan church. The Corinthian church has people sleeping with their stepmom. It's got uh, messed up, uh, lots, of, lots of weird morality that's also happening in and around in the culture with like cultic temple prostitutes and just terrible things that he's having to deal with. It's, it's this messed up place. The, the letter opens up to Corinthians and, and they're like, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Paul, I'm for Jesus. And they think they're, they're hyper-spiritualizing. They have these weird beliefs about angels. It, it is just a messed up and difficult kind of book. And that's the kind of guy that Titus is. Like when Paul was like, hey, I got this really messed up church. It's like, call in the cleaner, call in the hitman. He's the fixer. Here comes Titus right? And that's who Titus is. He's the kind of guy who gets sent to really hard, really difficult kinds of places to set things right and put them into order. And that's what he's getting sent to Crete to do, that he's going to get set and he's going to put things into order. And so here's this Greek 
man, uncircumcised guy, and then you have Paul, the guy who is the super Israelite, the Jew among Jews, circumcised on the eighth day. I mean, he can list it all. He has done all those things. He was so zealous in his Judaism that he was persecuting Christians. And listen to what he calls this Greek unclean Gentile. How does he address Titus? To Titus, my true child in a common faith. In their culture and in their world, Paul and Titus had every reason to despise each other. Every reason. But because they are both united in a common faith, because they had both been called by Jesus, called home and submitted their life to Christ, Paul looks at this young man and says, that's my son. That's my family. That is my child. I trust him to put into order things in this place where I love these people and I love this church and I want it to be right. I want it to thrive and survive all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Titus is my guy. As we talk about what it looks like to become a faith family, that's what we have to say. As we know, we are people coming from all over in different backgrounds, different denominations, different walks of life, different ethnicities, different backgrounds and stories. And we want to say, man, that's my brother. That's my sister. We coveted together as a church, Lord willing, on October 3rd now. But that's what we mean, and that's such a big deal. And maybe this is why God slowed it down a little bit so that I could take a little time and walk through this book and tell you this is what we're talking about, a covenant. It's like a marriage. As strange as it is, we're like asking you to get married to this church. This isn't something where we're just asking you to like kind of take it lightly. You know, anybody can always come and attend our church. Anyone. No one is held back. But when we talk about church membership... We are saying, man, I'm, I'm committing to you, and I'm asking you to commit to me. And in the same way, while I loved Brittany, and, and all the feelings were there, and I supported her, and she supported me, but when you really, really love somebody, and you know that's who it is, you make that thing official. You stand up in front of everybody, and you say, we are making a covenant together. We are saying, we belong to one another. And that's what we're saying when we become a church. When we covenant together, when we bring in new members, we're asking those people, we're saying, hey, you've been visiting, we love this, we want you to be a part of the family. This, this week, another example of this, Vera will become an official part of our family. Vera was my daughter the moment we heard about her. In my heart and, and in the ways that I loved her. But when things matter and they're meaningful, you make them official. And so on Tuesday, we will drive to a courthouse. We will stand in front of a judge. They will ask us, are you sure you want this little girl forever? This is, this is like a lifetime commitment. No matter what happens, they will drill us and we will say yes. This is our daughter. She is ours. And that's what we're saying when we talk about church membership. When we talk about covenanting together as one another. We're saying, will you be my brother Will you be my sister? Will you be my child? We're saying, will you come in and can we make this official? And we do that with open hands saying, yeah, we want more brothers and sisters to come. And we will bring that in. It's not a country club. It's an open house family. 
it's not, if you're not a member here, you can't attend here. Of course you can attend here. We love everybody to come here. We preach the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can grab some guy you meet off the street and bring him in here. I'd love that. But we are saying that we're, we're, we're covenanting together. We're being a family. We're saying, man, this, this is special. This moment is special because we're gonna say the kinds of things that Paul is saying here about Titus. This is my true child and we share a common faith together. And that's not all he says to Titus. He then looks at Titus and he says, and grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul literally uses some variation of this phrase in every single letter that he writes in the New Testament. Every single one. You can go through Romans, 1 Corinthians, all the way through. He gives some variation of grace and peace. Sometimes he adds the word mercy. Sometimes he kind of changes the wording on from God the Father or, you know, just the Lord. Sometimes it's a little, but grace and peace, grace and peace, every single letter. He writes to these churches and to these individuals who he loves, people who he calls his children, brothers, fellow soldiers, and every single time, every single time, he wishes them grace and peace. I think what I, what I fear a lot of times, and we've just had this a little bit ago, is when we hear something over and over and over again, we let it kind of lose its luster. And we don't want to sit on, like, what is he saying? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. And as I look at that, and Paul says it in every single letter, I want to say he is, is wishing grace and peace, not just in every single letter. Man, that is in all the Bible. These themes of grace and peace are all throughout the Bible. And he's seeing it over and over and over again. Let's think about the big story and the grand story of the Bible just for a second. Genesis 1, the scene opens up. God creates everything and it's all good. And there is peace, or God's shalom, this holistic peace. There's peace between God and man. There's peace between man and his wife, Adam and Eve. And there's peace even between man and nature. Everything is all as it's supposed to be. And then Adam and Eve sin before a holy God and that all gets ruptured. There's no longer peace between God and man. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. There's no longer peace between Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 tells us that they're gonna fight over control and who should do what and how that gets manifested. That's a big problem. And even in nature, it says that Adam's gonna work the ground really, really hard and sometimes he'll do all the right things and he'll still only get thorns and thistles. That nature itself is now rebelling against Adam in the way that it wasn't supposed to. And so there is no grace and no peace. They are separated and, and apart. And by Genesis 4, sin has escalated from taking a piece of fruit to murder of a brother as Cain kills Abel. That's how fast it happens. So much so, the escalation of sin and the, the decrease of peace in the world is such that by Genesis chapter six, God says, I'm starting all over. I'm wiping all these people out except for one family. I'm gonna send a flood and the judgment waters of God are gonna come and they're gonna wash over the earth except for this one family, Noah. And he does that and Noah and he brings Noah through and that's the story of Genesis 6 through 9 and then by Genesis 11 when they get off the boat and everything's all good they get off the ark 
It only takes like a chapter and a half, one genealogy in Genesis 10, and then Genesis 11, they're building a giant tower saying like, we're going to get to God. They've missed it like that fast. But God's not done and he's not finished with them because then in Genesis 12, he calls this man Abraham. He says, listen, Abraham, it didn't really work with Noah. So here's what we're going to do. And I'm saying that because that's not really true. We know that God had this plan before the ages passed. He's showing us that no matter what, his peace was not being had on earth, not through human beings alone. And he looks at Abraham and he says, listen, through your seed, all of the earth is going to be blessed. I'm going to bring priests to all of the earth. And the rest is the Old Testament. Is, is, is filled with war, pain, famine, exile, exodus, murder of children, false idols, broken families. It, it, it is a total mess from Genesis 12 to the end of Malachi. And then there's 400 years of silence and the peace of God is still not reigning on earth. The, this, this, this earth is filled with destruction and difficulty and hardship. And then a group of shepherds are out in Luke 2 and angels burst through the sky and they announce the birth of the Savior. They announce the birth of Jesus. And what do they say? Glory in the highest. And what? Peace on earth with whom God is well pleased. What is the announcement of Jesus? What is the announcement of him coming to earth? It's peace because he's going to show grace because that little baby is going to grow up and he's going to live a perfect life and then he's going to die for sin. Listen to what Paul explains the life of Jesus, his death, his, his, his beating, his his mocking, all that Jesus endures for sin. Paul says this, he says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled or made peace in his body of flesh by his death. How is peace brought to the world? Peace is bought through the grace of Jesus. Think about that moment. Jesus is beaten, mocked, made to carry his own cross, put up on the cross, nailed to it. And then what happens? While he's nailed to the cross, looking at his persecutors, the people who who have, have done all these horrible, horrific things, you know what Jesus cries? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He is crying out grace, grace, grace on them because that is the only way there can be peace. The only way there can ever be peace in this world is if we show grace and live out grace and that's what Jesus does on the cross. He dies for people and he should call down angels from heaven to judge them and he doesn't. He doesn't cry out and say, I'm gonna get revenge. He cries out, Father, forgive them. Show them grace. Show them mercy. And then he dies and resurrects from the dead. And listen to what Paul says about that in Romans 5, 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Isn't that awesome? You have peace with God because of the grace shown to you in Jesus Christ. I want to suggest this. You don't have peace in your life. It's because you're not showing or receiving the grace of God. 
You have trouble at home with you and your spouse. You need grace. Blame shifting, saying who did it, that is not going to help you. You need grace. You have trouble with your kids like I did yesterday. There's no peace between you and your son. It's grace, not the law. Grace is going to make peace. Where there is no grace, there can be no peace. And to every church and every pastor and every individual the Apostle Paul writes to, he tells them, grace and peace to you through God the Father and Jesus Christ the Savior. Some variation of that. The God the Father who willed it and planned it and the Son who accomplished it Oh, what I want for my churches. Oh, what I want for these guys that I'm calling children in the faith, my sons. I want them to have grace and peace. I want you to have grace and peace. I want grace and peace. I want it here and I want it in my life. I need the peace of God. I can't be satisfied with anything else other than that. But the reality is, the peace we experience in our horizontal relationships here, within the church, within our homes, within our jobs, always is contingent upon the peace we have with God in our vertical relationship. There is never a situation in which the horizontal peace you do not experience is not directly linked to how you relate to God. Because even when other people are the cause because you're being sinned against, You can bear up in that and you can have peace in that, but only if you are firmly in his hands. Only if you're saying, God, I'm entrusting myself to you, the God who judges righteously. Jesus in agony and in difficulty went to the cross with peace of mind. Hebrews tells us that he endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. He knew what was happening. He was at peace with God and in his actions. And everyone, us, the whole world was sinning against him. You can have peace in this world when everything goes wrong. If you entrust yourself to the God who judges rightly, if you entrust yourself to him and you say, God, I need your grace and help me show your grace. And even when other people continue to sin against me, I can then bear up in the sufferings of Christ. I can walk in your footsteps and I can have peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding is what Paul says in Philippians. It will guard your hearts and mind. He doesn't say your circumstances will get better. He doesn't say everything will get easy. But he says, I'll give you peace. Christ will give you peace. And that's my my prayer for us today is that as we walk through the book of Titus and we learn how to live a godly life because we learn about who our God is, that we would have peace, peace with one another and peace outside of here, but not because the circumstances change. I don't know how long we'll be anything. We may be wearing masks for a long, long time. We might have to figure out a way to go online. We might have to do, I I don't know. I have no idea, but God knows. Nothing's gonna catch him off guard. And, And if we commit to ourselves to him and to his word in the scriptures, We can have peace. We can know that it's going to be all right. 
He's going to have his way in the end. Because he has given the right to be children of God to all who call upon his name. Everyone can have that peace because we know that he keeps his promises, his promises of grace and peace. So if you're here this morning and you don't have peace in your life, call upon the name of Jesus. Cry out to him and him alone. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to preach from your word, to walk in the footsteps of Paul while I am no apostle, that the apostles are a special group of people who saw you and wrote the scriptures. I get to walk in their steps and and teach these words, this word of Paul, because it was entrusted to him and commanded by you, the God who saves. And I thank you for the opportunity to preach the Bible. I thank you, God, that I can do that with hope that it'll change lives, hope in the eternal life that only you can give, that it will bring life not because of me, but because of you. Because you're the God who never lies, who keeps all of his promises. So God, help us grow in our knowledge of the truth and live a life of godliness. Not because of us, but because of you. And Lord, I just pray that we exalt the name of Jesus high, that we have a big view of who God is, and that we see the one true God, the God of the Bible, rules and reigns over all things. And because of that, and because we know that you're good and kind, you will bring us peace. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.